is my request You don't have to play it But I hope you'll do your best I've been listening to your show on the radio And you seem like a friend to me Party to hop off for 8 o'clock at the Greater 3UZ Sammy Show for Friday night. Okay, the time is 22 before 9, 12.72 SM with Ian Macrae in the morning. For AP and Kevin Hillier, Sunday morning, out for a couple of showers later today and a top of 25. Well, it's 27 past 12 right now. This is Laurie Bennett at 2SM. At 24 to 8 with Peter Grayson, town at the moment 17 degrees. Howdy, hi, Victoria. Stand the man. Hello. Well, hi and welcome once again to Pilots of the Airwaves. It is our 40 minutes or so where we get to speak to the people behind the voices who were friends to a whole generation. And today's guest started in Tasmania, ended up in Tasmania, but in between enjoyed a radio journey that saw him work at and guide some of this country's biggest radio stations to number one. Rod Spargo has seen it all. Rod Spargo, welcome to Pilots, and thanks for joining us. Thanks for uh, taking the time to talk to me. Now, Rod, these days we catch you down in Tassie, where you've spent a fair chunk of your life. Are you an original Taswegian, or were you brought up on the mainland? Yes, they were, yeah. In Melbourne. Now, a young Rod Spargo, was he an academic, a struggler, or just a guy who had his heart set on a career that would take him up and down the east coast of Australia? No, I, uh, I, I, I never really warmed to school or any of that. I was, um, I, I guess I grew up around show business with my father because um, he Worked at uh, 3DB, 3UZ, Channel 7 in Melbourne, so it was always around me. Now, like so many budding jocks of the day, you honed your craft down there at 3SA, the radio school, of course, run by Clark Sinclair. Who else was training down there at the time when you were there? At the time, um, um, I don't know whether any of these blokes are still around. Um, yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, Paul Connick, people used to come back to say hello to Clark. So, you know, you'd be doing work there and all of a sudden somebody would bowl in um, who already was working in radio. So uh, you got to see a lot of people who were already in the business. So what did you learn at 3SA? Um, I used to be very handy with the soldering iron and... um, and also, uh, Clark didn't have too much money, so we used to do things like um, buy stuff that would be installed in the studio, and I did a lot of work in that area. Many a night, I'd be sitting in there, still working on it, and it was pitch dark, heading towards daylight, 
which I used to get into trouble for coming home at all godly hours. Um, but it was just, you know, once the bug gets you, that's it. It's in your system. So February 3, 1964, your first appointment at 7BU in Burnie in Tasmania. So how did that first shift go and uh, what the have you doing? I was convinced. I didn't have um, very much belief in my own ability yet. And I was convinced. In fact, I was absolutely blown away that I hadn't been sacked after day one. Um, it was almost like an echo. I had listened to George Danes talking and going around to the Baptist church to set up the the microphones for the, the broadcast they do of a Sunday from the Baptist church. They had your writing copy. I remember the manager came around and he said, listen, it's costing me a fortune, you blokes. Like as soon as you make a mistake on a piece of copy, don't scribble it up and chuck it in the dustbin. Turn it over and use the other side. <laughs> First time away from home in a brand new state. What was it like? Uh, awful. It was initially. Um, I sat on the end of my bed and I thought, what have I done? It's going to be a while before I can uh, go back to Melbourne. And, uh, you know, you soon, I guess, rise above that. Things start to happen. You meet a few uh, nice-looking women, um, and they tend to change your mind. So I, um, I met the, the woman that um, I ended up marrying. Hey, nice. Right, we can put that Bernie experience down as a positive. Back to the mainland, to the first floor of the TNG building on Lava Street in Windy Old Warrnambool and 3YB. So how important was it with those regional appointments to connect with the local community? Uh, you, you just, being honest, you did what you had to do uh, as much as they asked you to do um, and you just keep with that one final goal for me which was to get to either Melbourne, um, which would have been 3UZ or Sydney because I'd always loved 2UE and, you know, you just keep plugging away. So basically three stations in three years, with the 1966 appointment at 7LA in Launceston, the home of many great jocks over the years, including the legendary Don Lunn and, of course, the doyen John Vertigan. Were those guys still in Lonnie when you were there? Nobody. There was only uh, the breakfast announcer, which I took over from Brian Simo Simmons. I don't think he's in radio anymore. And... Uh, that was about it. I mean, uh, LA had a, a lot of more senior type announcers, and Seven uh, EX was the uh, you know hit radio. Alan McClelland um, was the uh, the general manager at that station. Now, even though it was only two years, did you see a shift in the radio presentation from Bernie to Launceston? Like, was there more top forty influence starting to surface? No, LA was still dragging the chain. Um, they fought like crazy to stay um, behind the play, if you like. Um, and, um, you know, EX was just so far ahead. They had people working for them, like um, names that you would know, like Rod Muir, 
Um, you know, Rod Muir came back from America. Um, he was the talk of the town. And, um, you know, a lot of people had never heard anybody work the way he worked. Yeah, as soon as he moved to Sydney, um, he got in the uh, SM, 2SM network, um, got heavily involved in Degamay um, and programming. Um, and, you know, it just, it all took off. Now, one of the great training grounds for budding jocks was 2HD in Newcastle, where that alumni roll call reads like something of a who's who of Australian radio. Tell us a little about your experience at 2HD. I had a wonderful time um, in Newcastle, especially at 2HD. I I really, I suppose it wouldn't have been funny at the time, but uh, we used to do a lot of um, outside broadcasts. They had two comma vans that had like a hoarding across the top of the van and you never stopped to think about it one of them was lower than the other one and I just finished doing the beaches and we used to give away sun tan cream in sachets and all sorts of stuff like that so anyway I come back in I've got uh, another drop with me by the name of Art Ryan so we're rocking in through the back of the property, heading straight to the garage. I didn't even stop to think about it. The one garage was lower than the other one. So I just drove the van in there, and the next minute, everything came to a grinding halt. <laughs> the van was stuck underneath the entrance to the garage. All the hoarding was ripped off completely, all the signage, everything. And I said to Arthur, um, come on, mate, we've got to get stick in, stuck into this and, and try and, and make it look respectable. He said, look, I've got to go. I've got to be somewhere else. And he did. He got out of the car and left me. And I'm, I'm in the car trying to get out the door and figure out what I was going to do. I didn't get into any trouble, but a very kind technician helped me take all the hoarding off the top of the car. He's still my best mate, Arthur Ryan, but that's just art. Got to be somewhere else. <laughs> Newcastle is probably the closest thing to a capital city appointment, but no doubt you are eyeing some of the possibilities in the big smoke. Was 3UZ on the top of your list? No, it actually wasn't. 2UE was, because I, uh, I I'd actually drove on my way up to Newcastle. I drove around into North Sydney, and I wanted to show Maureen, my wife, what the building looked like at 237 Miller Street. God, I didn't think I'd remember that number. And uh, I did, and then a job came up. It was in B&T, program manager they were advertising for. So I'd already gone from 2HD in Newcastle down to 3UZ in Melbourne for midnight to dawn. And therein developed a, a story that had more turns and leaps in it than you could ever imagine. The greater three years, you know, it was a, a great learning period. Um, some brilliant talent in the radio station at um, at three years. I mean, they had, uh, I think, Jimmy Hannon was doing mornings. Don Lunn was doing breakfast. Vertigan was doing racing in the afternoon. I remember Bob Cornish just took one look at me and thought, ah possible talent here for doing sporting coordination and of course that wasn't in my mindset 
here I was, I wanted to be the next Don Lund or the next um, Sam Anglesey or the next um, Alan Lappin. But it was going to be a, a long time before anything like that happened. So, you know, one thing led to another, and uh, I did anything they wanted me to do. That was from reading news during midnight to dawn, doing midnight to dawn shifts, um, coordinating sport. Uh, you name it, I did it. Now, is it correct in the early days that you had to take over that 10-to-1 shift from the legendary Stan Rofe? Yes, that's um, right. Yeah, I did. Well, how hard was it taking over from Stan, and how did you make it your own? Well, it, it, he was fantastic. He he um, he never offered a lot of advice, but he'd certainly tell you if you're doing something wrong. And I'm one of the few people who most people came in the front door and got a shift. <laughs> I've worked backwards from midnight to dawn, working my way from midnight to dawn, then 10 to 1, and then 7 to 10. And then the next minute... Um, I'm filling in while Bert Newton's on holidays with Ugly Dave Gray. Now, that was a real experience. And, um, you know, it just, uh, it clicked. That was that. As actually, that was thanks to Bob Cornish because uh, Cornish was the one who, um, I filled in for Bert Newton while he went on holidays with Ugly Dave Gray. They liked what they heard and, they, and Bob came to me and he said, I've got an idea. He said, would you like to come with me up to Sydney? He said, um, we'll record some stuff at 2KY and use their studios and then bring it back down to Melbourne and decide what the hell we're going to do with it. So that's what we did. And when we got back down to Melbourne, um, it was my job to put it all together. And that resulted in uh, quite an extraordinary period for me because 80% of the time... He was never there in the studio. Wow. The chemistry between you two uh, came across well on air. Obviously, just another illusion of radio. So how hard was it to be spontaneous, upbeat and entertaining in a situation like that? Well, it was all pre-recorded. The program had to fit in between the races in the afternoon and that was all in pieces. I had come in at 10 o'clock in the morning and start putting pieces together. I'd, I'd... be able to realise that it was lacking a few more funny little things to be dropped into it. So next time Dave Gray came down for a visit, um, I'm, sit- I'm sitting down and he'd just reel off a few things. But it didn't matter. I mean, if there was a chair in the corner that squeaked, that became an item you could use. You know, I mean, it was a fantastic time because radio is the last theatre of the mind and you can create anything in people's minds. Now just looking across the dial from a 1970 program guide, at 6pm on a Saturday night, you were up against the likes of Dennis Scanlon on 3DB, Peter Leslie 3KZ, Graham Berry at 3XY and Lionel York at 3AK. Some significant competition there. Yes there was, but I had one thing that um, unless unless you were a dyed-in-the-wool sports follower, they couldn't ever get their hands on the trots from the showgrounds or the greyhounds or any of that. So you knew you had a, a, a small section of the audience that were going to be with you because they're mad punters and they'll just stay there. Um, so you got that as a, as a bonus added to your figures. 
Now moving slightly further into the 70s, and a number of new players on the block were emerging, including the more music of 3XY and the wrinklies of 3AK. So what effect did they have on 3UZ? Absolutely slaughtered them. The one really good thing that came out of that period was that Rhett Walker introduced a lady who I... God, I've forgotten her name, but she had that really unusual voice. She did the line... Um, 3AK, where no wrinklies fly. This is 3AK, where no wrinklies fly. And I always admired her, the tone of her voice and the way she could bend that phrase. So when I eventually moved to Sydney, I looked her up and used her at 2UE for years. Now, we've mentioned all those big names of UZ at the time, like the Lappins, the Lunds, the Sparks, the Anglesey's Verdigans, all giants of the Melbourne radio airwaves. There was one other guy you worked with by the name of Grant Goldman. What do you recall of Grant? Grant came in thanks to Bill Gates. Now, I'm not sure. Bill Gates went to Brisbane and came back with this bloke. He'd been talking about him for a while, about how different he was. He was on 4IP. Grant Goldman, and the next minute we all knew was Grant was doing breakfast, and ah, oh, that's right, Don Lunn had been suspended. He was off the scene. Sometimes jocks do some strange things. He took all the signage out of the mini moke and put up his Don Lunn travel sign in the mm-hmm. van, and uh, Lewis Bennett was furious. And the next thing we all knew was that um, he was no longer doing breakfast. And then, lo and behold, along comes this new guy, um, Grant Goldman. And he was just like a breath of fresh air. He was so good. I never made a um, mistake of not listening to your, what your future potential or challenge would be. And I'm sitting in the studio one day, and I'm, you could go across all the studios by pressing buttons. And this guy came in, and he stuck his head in the studio door, and he said, uh, G'day. He said, I'm Grant Goldman. Said, um, um, uh, Bill Gates has just brought me down. Uh, I want to have a look at how this all works. I'll talk to you later. So he disappeared, and the next thing I knew was that he was the new breakfast announcer. I, I listened to him for a minute, and I thought, my God. You know, if I'm ever going to get up off midnight to dawn, by God, I'm going to have to improve. The old beach broadcasts, the Hoadley's Battle of the Sounds, Newsbeat, Radio Editions, and of course the famous 3UZ Keymania must have been an exciting time to be in radio. Yeah, it was actually, and um, you know, there were many things that radio doesn't go that far really. When um, I left UZ in 1977 and went to 2UE, we decided we're going to do a promotion and it was called um, Money Mania. I was just about to go to America for a new jingle package. That's in 1977. When I came back, I, get the, I got them to record an opening, not dissimilar to Key Mania, because it had a pitch like, you know, Key Mania, and this was Money Mania. It's one thing I can't do is sing. Um, <laughs> and... Um, we did that promotion, and uh, how that worked was that you, at ungodly hours in the morning, park outside different houses all around Sydney and give the occupant 60 seconds to get outside and uh, claim money, money, which was uh, $1,000 cash, which was quite a bit of dough in uh, 1977. Mm-hmm. 
um, some funny things happened. I um, was outside a house in Carring Bar in Sydney, if you know it at all, and uh, this, what I thought was a woman, uh, came out to the car within the 60 seconds wearing a nightie. And I, <laughs> I looked at the person and I thought, well, I'm not here to describe what you look like as a woman, but I thought it flashed across my mind, you know, you aren't the most attractive woman that I have ever seen. So after the thing wound up, I got to talk to her and or him, and what the story was that they were listening to the radio in the bedroom. He yells out to her. He's in the in the all together, and they were actively uh, busy. That he he said, look, for a thousand bucks, he said, I'm going out with nothing on to get the thousand dollars. So she said, you can't do that. She threw her nighty at him. He put that on, and when he got outside to see me, he's wearing this lady's pink nightie. The, the, the then general manager said to me, can't you tell the difference between a man and a woman? I said, now listen, I'll tell you the whole story. So 77, leaving the security of Melbourne and 3UZ and taking on the challenges of programming Sydney's 2UE. Now, of course, at the time, 2SM was the dominant force in the Sydney marketplace. So what shape was the station in when you arrived? And why did you think you could make a difference? I always thought that, in fact, um, I was probably a little bit late in my thinking that um, Gary O'Callaghan was unassailable. And I remember having a conversation with Dan Wilmot, who was the then general manager. We'd just come through the very first survey that I was involved in. And he said to me, listen, what do we do? He said, what do we do to knock off 2SM and the rest of them? I said, well, it's going to cost you a bit of money. And he said, we've got that. What do I need to do? So I said, okay, what you need to do is um, spend a bit more money on Gary O'Callaghan you need to go and buy John Laws because there was a rumbles coming out of 2UW that he wasn't happy and uh, and then go and buy Steve Liebman and put him in from 12 midday doing a current affairs type program through till maybe 1 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon and I said, he said, what do we do after that? I said, it won't matter we will be that far ahead it's just not funny that's exactly what happened um, immediately, uh, he authorised the people to go and talk to John Laws, one of them being the sales manager, Tom Crozier. So that was stitched up. Um, we didn't get Steve Liebman, but it didn't matter. I mean, O'Callaghan was still, you know, really, really so far in front. And then uh, having Laws come across the two UE, oh, it was just like um, going from... Um, boil lollies to all gold chocolates. So did you have a staff and management who from the start uh, shared your vision or was it hard yards for a while for a guy from Melbourne to be calling the shots up in Sydney? No, they they, um, they were amazing. You know, I mean, I, uh, I, I guess starting at the 
the bottom level, which was the production level, because I spent a lot of time in the production department getting the sound of the backup to the radio station. Um, and when that was right, and as I said before, um, I, can't, I wish to God I could remember her name. I finally found her, okay, where no wrinklies fly. We didn't use that line, but we ended up coming up, I reckon, the best line that I have ever come up with. Because 2SM were always knocking us off, or 2CH were always, with beautiful music, knocking us off. So you had to have a line that you could drop on the air uh, that really didn't say that you were number one, even though you'd lost number one. So the line was, uh, in the beginning, there was two UE, and we're still first in Sydney. You can't do anything with that. I mean, I'm not saying we're number one, and we were the first station in Sydney. So two UE, um, you know, we were first in Sydney. So, Rod, during your time at 2UE, you also introduced the Rhythm of the City campaign. How did that one go? Uh, just before, it sounds like that was a death wish. No, um, Rhythm of the City was, um, we used to have a bloke come uh, and visit us from time to time, Harry O'Connor of O'Connor Creative Services, and he used to get all the jingle packages. He had a, a deal with uh, TM in Dallas, um, where when a, when a station would finish with a jingle package, he had the rights to the raw jingle. So you'd change it to whatever, which one of them was rhythm, rhythm of the city. And uh, first time I heard that jingle package, I thought, bloody earth, you know, it just makes you want to get up on the table. I don't know whether anybody ever really got the maximum out of that. In fact, I'm a strong believer that a lot of those jingle packages were written specifically for a station, like um, uh, there was a station in San Diego, and the jingle package tended to blend more perfectly with that call sign. There was uh, San Diego 76, KFMB, and, and that one, um, we modified that to 2UE Sydney 95. Um, but I don't know, I always thought that maybe there was just that tiny little something missing, whereas when a package is written specifically, like the one that was written for 3UZ in Melbourne, you got the sound of the 60s, that was written for no other station in America, anywhere in the world except 3UZ, and it sounded like it too. You get the sound of the 60s on 3UZ now the early 80s was a time of transition in radio in australia with fm licenses being snapped up in all the capital cities just wondering did 2ue feel the effects of the new stations while you were there not really um it was later 
when they slowly started to eat into the normal AM audience. It just, it was slow. I'll probably say the wrong word, insidious, but, you know, it was the future. Um, and it, it just went on and on. And each time the survey came out, a little more of the traditional AM audience had gone. So after six years in Sydney, there was a move up to Newcastle to be part of that brave new frontier of radio up there. So firstly, how much of a calculated risk was that move? And why did Newcastle miss out on an FM licence at the time? They missed out. (laughs) I'll tell you a story. Sometimes you can get into bed with the wrong people. There are people who are switched on to radio. I jumped into the wrong camp. I jumped into the camp where... You've got a, and there's nothing more dangerous than a bunch of enthusiastic amateurs. And one morning, uh, I went in to the offices that we had to have a talk to the chairman, and nobody knew where he was. Where he was was in America. He'd got on a plane and gone to America and decided that he would go around the deep south and come up with the format. So he came back with the format, and he said, I've got it. This is it. We're going to be religion in the morning, and we're going to be uh, beautiful music in the afternoon. <laughs> I thought, well, i got news for you, cock. I'm off. So uh, I left, and that was that. And they never they never got me further. But we'd done, we'd done some groundwork, like uh, I went down to Melbourne, sorry, Sydney, uh, had a, a, a long talk to Willisie, and um, Noel McGurgan, who was the general manager of Today, and had lined up Today FM News and Today FM uh, Knowledge of um, uh, FM Music. And we were going to use that. Well, that all went out the window. to Sydney to 2KY for what must have been a most intriguing time in your career, especially working with one of the most influential advertising men in Australia, John Singleton, as an on-air presenter who I'm sure had his own unique way of doing things. Yeah, he um, he didn't really, he, he just, John was one of these people that didn't take notice of too many people, he'd just make a decision like, you know, the old, you know, where do you get it? Remember that advertising campaign? And you just followed. He only, he had uh, a belief that what he was telling you was right. He'd, uh, he decided that we'd do an advertising campaign. I mean, you're, you're only kidding yourself if you think that you, singular, are the voice of that radio station and this is the way we're going to go. You just, you know, you've got to, You've got to use your nouts and try and work out which way the horse is going and make certain you're on the wrong, on the right end of it. So, um, you know, Singleton was very influential because he was very powerful as far as the uh, Labor Council. They were the owners of 2KY. Um, and, you know, you just, you just did what you had to do. As we know, churches and political parties had a significant influence over a number of stations, especially from the 60s through to the 80s. So how did you find working for the Labor Council? 
um, they didn't like spending money because they they would suck it away. That was the same as 2K, uh, yeah, 2HD in Newcastle. They were owned by the Trades and Labor Council, um, and they wouldn't spend a penny on 2HD. It was just about falling apart. Um, you know, the, the, it was stuck together by sticky tape. And, and uh, 2KY uh, didn't like spending money either, but they had it, you know, stashed away, they had it. Now, Rod, is it correct that you had to be a member of or join a union to work at 2KY at the time? No, no. I, um, I must admit, I, I just about fell through the floor the first time. I went in for the final interview at uh, the Trades and Labor Council building in Sussex Street, and I, um, I walked into the boardroom and little Jimmy, I can't remember his surname, said, Come in, comrade. And I'd never heard that term except in the Communist Party. So, um, you know, I thought, oh, what is going on here? But that was a term of endearment. It's fair to say, Rod, we've had several polarising characters on Australian radio, but one who must be towards the top of the list was the always controversial Ron Casey. So when it came to Casey, was the risk worth the reward? Uh, It was at the time. But that didn't last terribly long. It was a Trades and Labor Council gamble that, in the end, backfired. Because you'd sit him down and say, Ron, you can't call those people that name anymore. And Ron, you can't do this and this and this. And he'd say, yeah, you're 100% right. Okay, all right. He'd get out of my office, go to the lift, go to the top floor, and then get on the chair and start. And away he'd go. Everything that he said, I won't do that again, he did. So, Rod, of course, it all came to a head in 1988 with Casey's comments regarding Asians and Asian migration. So how tense was it around the studio with the sackings, the reinstatements, and the other collateral damage that went along with it? Um, well... Nobody, nobody really uh, could follow it because I'd always worked for stations that when they said something, they did it. They didn't uh, take a 50-50 bet that if we don't do this, we don't have to do that. And it was like you never knew. You never, never knew what your right or your left hand was going to do. And you can't live like that. Now, Rod, you might be able to help us out with this one because Radio Folklore has it that there were up to four dump buttons throughout the building where any one of a number of people could have killed Casey's comments before they went to air. No, there was only one dump button. We employed a man who was a journalist and um, he had a office on the third floor with his own <laughs> dump button um, and he had the power to hit that dump button as many times as he liked in any hour, and he was the only one. Oh, that was that was yep. something that the uh, broadcast tribunal insisted that his program couldn't go to air without having um, a dump button. Now, Rod, you mentioned there the Australian Broadcasting Tribunal, where you and two of your colleagues had to face up to them and answer some questions. Now, not a pleasant experience for anyone. How did that all pan out? It was shocking. Um, do you know how that all ended 
was, um, and by that time I think I'd had enough, um, I had to go on air and apologise for not being able to control Ron Casey and um, and uh, that we would try harder. Now, I mean, people would say to me, you know, fancy having to... Look, what's the option? Nothing's, nothing's going to change. We're going to try like crazy. Casey's not going to go on forever and there will be a radio station after I'm gone, he's gone, and everybody else is gone because you don't go around throwing licences away. So that was that. You just wear it. Now, just putting aside all those unnecessary pressures, you still had a great crew at KY, including, of course, Gary O'Callaghan, Ida Buttrose and Bob Mormel. On reflection, how would you describe your years at 2KY? <laughs> Interesting. That's the only word I'd like to use. Um, but you see, you, you're just building sometimes to a beautiful pinnacle. Your uh, resume, um, the people who come along with you, they go along for the ride. Some of them stay to the end. Some of them jump off. But, you know, it's right from the very first moment. It's been the most amazing, enjoyable ride in this industry, which I thought I was going to get the bullet after the first day. I was absolutely convinced. There are some people who say you should have been given the bullet after the first day, but uh, you do the best you can. Now, back to Tassie for a nice long stint as program manager and on-air talent at HOFM. How much did you enjoy the change of pace and the chance to get back on air? Well, I, I didn't. I mean, I, I um, quite frankly was packing them because I had been off air for so long and I thought, well, you've done it now, Rodney. So, you know, going back on air, that was stage one. And then stage two, the program manager decided he'd take a, a job in um, Budapest and with a team of consultants and... Um, I thought about it and thought about it and thought about it and thought, bugger it, I might as well take the job as program manager rather than have some other bugger tell me what to do. And that's what happened. So was that an enjoyable time at HO? Yeah, yeah, it really was. It was, um, but it was, again, another Gary O'Callaghan-type situation. You've got a breakfast announcer team that is so strong and, um, you know, it'd follow after them. It was just a gift. But, like everything, uh, a new player comes into town um, in uh, the Benders who owned Triple T FM, and they eventually wore us down. OK, Rod, just a quick one to finish off with. Was the 2UE purchase of a boat in the mid-80s for the benefit of the station, for the benefit of Rod Spargo, or is the answer somewhere in the middle? Somewhere in the middle. It was a bloody beautiful boat. It was a sea ray that came from America. Long story associated with um, how we ended up getting a boat. But, you know, we did, which was great. After a heavy week going down, we had it moored at the Spit Marina at uh, Mosman. And um, you could sit back there, put your feet up with a lovely roast chicken in the, um, the bow 
of the boat and, uh, yeah, of course I had to clean it. Okay, right, I've got in front of me a dozen questions that we ask all our guests. The first one being, where were you when you heard that John Lennon had died? Newcastle. Tell me, Rod, the last concert ticket you paid for. <laughs> you want the truth? Go on. I have never paid for a ticket. Hmm, regular answer, that one. The concert act you regret never seeing. Probably Bruce Springsteen, because there weren't any freebies floating around. But um, no, I just, uh, I think the energy, the raw energy that that guy just generated in his performances were just unbelievable. That word you had most trouble pronouncing on air? Uh, it was a place called, um, it's, it's, I'm even having trouble now, it's, um, it's in Tasmania and the name of the place is Bread Auburn, but I called it Breadalbane because I had a habit of pronouncing things phonetically. So if I looked at it and it looked like it should be pronounced that way, um, that's the way I would pronounce it until the manager would say, listen, cock, this is Tasmania. That is Bread Auburn, not Breadalbane. Another one was Sorrel. I called it S-O-R-E-L-L, -L, was Sorrel. And I had a lot like that. And they love to tell you, ah, you silly bugger, you mispronounced that. Rod, was there ever an incident that had you thinking you might get those don't-come-Monday orders? Yeah, one of them was putting that comma van in, in the wrong garage and taking the hoardings off the top of the car. And, um, I mean, there are a few smaller ones that um, I always remember uh, I had a tremendous time in Melbourne in the mid-'70s doing a program called Pop Chronicles. And... Uh, I interviewed Cole Joy, and Cole Joy, I asked him, what was what's the funniest thing that's ever happened to you? And he said, well, he said, I, I um, screaming Lord Such, who's still around these days, um, he said he checked into the Southern Cross Hotel and got into his room and then proceeded to undo the window, which allowed him access to the outside of the building. So he climbed up the uh, downpipe onto the roof and he had a loud hailer with him. So he took the loud hailer across to um, the air conditioning master unit on the roof and put it right up against the intake and just announced through the loud hailer, you can all go and get uh-uh. So <coughs> what happened there was he left the roof, got down the downpipe, went back to his room, then went downstairs to the reception and complained bitterly about the, the foul language that was coming out of the air conditioning unit. Skyhooks or Sherbet? Ah, uh, Sherbet. Rolling Stones or the Beatles? Very close to call. I mean, I, I, always, I would have said the Beatles straight off, but after recently seeing so much footage of, of the Rolling Stones... Um, no, I must admit I've really missed a part in, in enjoying a lot more of the Rolling Stones music. I think it was bloody brilliant. The most treasured piece of memorabilia from your early radio days? My scrapbook. <laughs> Rod, can you recall the biggest news story that broke while you were on air? There was, um, oh yeah, um, there was a plane that went down in, um, in Gippsland area 
um, and it looked like the pilot and uh, the co-pilot had died. So um, I rang, oh, that's right, and then uh, in came a message that they'd been, that was wrong, they hadn't died and they were okay. And I uh, did a stupid thing. I rang the woman who was the wife or mother and told her the news that they'd been found and it turned out to be wrong, Mm. wrong, wrong, wrong. They were long gone. Yeah, not a good situation. Rod, was there a moment when someone walked into your studio and you were suddenly starstruck? No, I must admit that that hasn't that hasn't happened because I interviewed so many people with the Australian Pop Chronicles. There were just bloody people coming in left, right and centre. I didn't I mean I had some interesting situations where we were going to do an interview with Max Bygraves and Ugly Dave Gray. And I, I didn't realise that they didn't like each other very much. And uh, I, I thought at one stage I'm going to have to separate them because it was a case of you have stolen nearly all of my jokes. I'm not going to be interviewed by you. <laughs> so that was, uh, that was another lesson. Vet who you're going to have in the studio before you bring them in. Can you tell us the best words of advice from a program manager? Don't say it. Finally, Rod, two albums that you'd consider to be the soundtrack of your teenage years. Obviously the Beatles, and um, I wasn't into that heavily into uh, the Rolling Stones, but um, I think there are a lot of other um, groups around. Yeah, there, there was a hell of a lot of compilation-type albums that were around. Hey, Rod, just before we wind it up, I've had my team of researchers out the back beavering away, and they've come up with the name of the 3AK Wrinkly Girl. Her name was Robin Martinez. There you go. Hey, Rod, the time has really flown. Thanks so much for the great stories from what has been a memorable radio career, one which I'm sure, and you should be, very proud of. Thanks again for being part of Pilots of the Airwaves. Look, Paul, um, it's... uh... It's a, it was an opportunity too good to miss because um, I've met some amazing people, made a lot of good friends, made a few, uh, yeah, on the opposite, but, you know, that's life. Yeah, but no, it's been great. Thank you. Rod Spargo on Pilots of the Airwaves. Pilots of the Airwaves.